Hi, this is William Ramsey. This is part two of History of the Abduction of William Morgan and the Anti-Masonic Excitement of 1826 to 1830 with many details and incidents never before published by A.P. Bentley, published 1874. So if you didn't hear part one, you can just go back and look at that. The first meeting. A public meeting was called at Batavia on the 4th of October for the purpose of making some arrangements in order to ascertain his fate. Mr. Henry Brown, an attorney at law at Batavia, New York, who was one of the active participants in this meeting soon after, wrote, quote, It was a solemn and impressive scene. A citizen of this free land had been taken by violence and confined without authority in some solitary place or conveyed by force without the United States to parts unknown or had fallen beneath some murderer's arm and no information relative to his destiny or fate had yet been received. The circumstances that he was poor, that he was dissolute, that he was in some respects unprincipled and therefore held in but little estimation by the community gave to the meeting in the eye of the philanthropist additional interest. Had he been a man of rank, of consideration, or of fortune, he would have been followed. He would have been rescued, and if necessary, an army would have been raised at his call and awaited his command. The wrongs of an individual once rocked the battlements of Troy and made the throne of Priam tremble to its base. But the unfortunate and degraded Morgan was suffered to be carried off under circumstances calculated to excite, excite the strongest suspicions with scarce an inquiry, unquote. Mr. Brown, although not himself a Mason, avers that this, at this meeting of those who took an active part in the proceedings, that some of the more respectable Freemasons were the foremost to institute an investigation and declared that if any members of the order had been guilty of kidnapping and murdering, Morgan or whoever had committed such an outrage should be punished to the full extent of the law. And then he adds, quote, I regret that I cannot in justice forbear to remark that a number of the most conspicuous anti-Masons in the county men who became so long after Morgan's abduction and who have since participated in the rewards and honors of a triumphant party designedly abstained from this meeting. Nor can I, in justice to my own feelings, suffer this occasion to pass without applauding in the highest terms the candor, good sense, and above all the holy fervor which appeared to inspire and expand the bosoms of the great mass of which was composed. A writer of eminence, I believe, Mr. Burke, observed that in the public opinion, is that the public opinion is often wrong and that, but the public feeling never. An outrage all thought had been committed, but its extent and authors were unknown. An inquiry was demanded, the public indignation was aroused, and the detection and punishment of the guilty seemed to be the only object. A committee of nine was appointed to take such no action as they deemed advisable to bring the guilty to punishment but these sensible measures were soon interrupted by more violent proceedings. Morgan's book made its appearance from Miller's press soon after the author's disappearance, quote, costing perhaps 10 cents in which the greedy public appetite swallowed to a surfeit for some time at the price of $1, unquote. The book was a burlesque in its typ typographical appearance and its matter a jumble of inconsistencies and absurdities. It certainly would at any other time have attracted but little notice. It contained the same matter as that published in New York in 1814, with some addition taken from a work published at Lancaster, Pennsylvania in 1812. This latter book was a large volume of 438 pages by Joseph Aaron Freed, printer, and entitled, quote, The Anti-Christian and Social Conspiracy, an extract from the French of a Abbey Burrell, to which is profixed Jachin and Boaz, 
or an authentic key to the door of Freemasonry, ancient and modern, unquote. This Lancaster publication does not seem to have been much of a success, as it is reported, but few sales ever took place, and the book entailed a heavy loss upon the publisher. The public refused to recognize it only as an imposition, and supposed that the author had drawn upon his imagination instead of truly representing the secret rites of masonry. The work of Morgan, however, was interlarded with extracts from the textbooks and monitors of the craft in common use, of which the public was as familiar outside as the initiated inside. This was claimed by those who wished to have it so as an undisputed evidence that it was a true exposition and without further thought declared it to be established and people might as well question the authenticity of the Bible as Morgan's book. Leroy Convention. A few months after Morgan's book was before the public, a number of Freemasons, either from mercenary or other motives, resolved to join with the anti-Masons to break down the institution. Elder David Barnard seems to have been their leader. They assembled at Leroy in a convention on the 19th of February, 1827, and then declared their renunciation and their connection with the order. Elder Barnard, in his, quote, light on masonry, unquote, states that there were 40 masons present at this meeting. Other authorities say that there were not more than 10 or 12, and that some of these had been expelled for unmasonic conduct, and that if 40 individuals took part in this meeting, the majority were not and never had been masons. They solemnly enacted that Freemasonry was a wicked institution and that it had murdered Morgan and was capable of doing all sorts of abominations if permitted to exist. They made arrangements for the publishing of a revised edition of all the pretended expositions of Masonry that had produced for the past 200 years, appointed committees for a general crusade against the institution, and adjourned to meet again on the 4th of July. The popular feeling was now ripe for the excitement which followed which has scarcely a parallel in this or any civilized country. Anti-Masonic committees had been formed in the several counties with the avowed object to discover the mystery of Morgan's exit and bring the guilty to punishment. These committees met and commenced their work at Lewiston in March, 1827, and a complete organization was effected to drive the Masonic institution from the land. This committee caused notices to be published containing statements of facts and circumstances. As far as ascertained, and desired all who possessed any knowledge or information, whatever in relation to either the abduction or murder of Morgan, to communicate the same without delay to some one of the committee. A request was also sent to Governor Clinton desiring his aid. He was promptly granted and a proclamation immediately issued offering a reward of $2,000 and requiring the aid of every law-abiding citizen and granting pardon to accomplices that should give evidence in the case. On the other hand, the Masonic bodies everywhere disclaimed all knowledge or approval of the outrage, and the Grand Royal Arch Chapter of New York at its annual convocation in February 1827, in which more than 100 subordinate chapters were represented, passed unanimously the following resolution, quote, Resolved by this Grand Chapter that we, its members, individually and as a body, do disclaim all knowledge or approbation of proceedings in relation to the abduction of William Morgan, and that we disapprove of the same as a violation of the majesty of the laws and an infringement on the rights of personal liberty secured to every citizen of our free and happy republic, unquote. Similar resolution, resolutions were passed in most of the subordinate chapters in the state and also by many of the Blue Lodges who avowed their most solemn condemnation of all who had been engaged in such unlawful proceedings. Some of them at once instituted proceedings to summon their members were charged as having been connected with the abduction, and the highest penalty known to Masonic law, 
expulsion was inflicted in several cases. These measures, however, were scouted as insincere, and the anti-Masons would listen to nothing save the entire destruction of the institution. Political anti-Masonry. The excited state of the public mind was now seized upon by certain ambitious and unscrupulous politicians to organize a political party whereby they hoped to ride into power. Through the Seceders Convention at Leroy and the Anti-Masonic Committee as organized at Lewiston, the germ of a powerful political party was formed. Thurlow Weed, then editor of a small newspaper at Rochester, changed its name to the Anti-Masonic Inquirer and became the most prominent and active leader. The great talents and energy of Weed as a journalist and political leader soon brought the organization into complete working order. He was assisted by many of the most effective and talented men of Western New York, among whom were William H. Seward, Francis Granger, John C. Spencer, Myron Hawley, Frederick Whittlesley, Robert S. Rose, Solomon Southwick, Robert Albert R. H. Tracy, and others. The plan was to arouse every passion in the masses and embitter them against the institution of Freemasonry in all secret societies. For this purpose, they determined to make the most out of the Morgan affair. They proclaimed that Morgan was abducted pursuant to the requirements of Masonry. They asserted, and the assertion was reiterated, that the whole fraternity was chargeable with shedding his blood. That even the skirts of the illustrious governor of New York were not clear. No efforts were spared to make the people believe these tales. A general crusade was commenced against Masonry, where the established newspapers would not support the anti-Masonic party, nor denounce all secret societies as inimical to free government. New presses were set up, and every county in the central and western part of the state had its organ red-hot for the strife. For instance, in Canandaigua, there were two old established newspapers, the Repository and Messenger, the former National Republican in politics, and supporting John Quincy Adams for re-election to the presidency, the latter Democratic and supporting General Jackson. Neither of these papers would espouse the cause of anti-Masonry, and the antis in Ontario County were without an organ. But it was not long before a new press and type were procured, and a genuine anti-Masonic paper started by one W.W. Phelps, assisted by Francis Granger and Stephen Bates. Phelps called his paper The Phoenix, and it was conducted with all the bitterness of his nature. It would astonish some readers of the present day to read the blasphemous editorials that he put forth. He continued the publication of the paper until political anti-Masonry began to wane in 1830, when he joined the Joe Smith and his Mormon band went to Jackson County, or Joseph Smith is what they're saying, <clears throat> where he commenced a Mormon publication and died a raving maniac. As in Ontario, so it was in other counties, and the party had more organs in the state of New York than any other party had ever, ever had before. Among the most influential and leading ones of these organs were Thurlow Weed's Anti-Masonic Inquirer and Solomon Southwick's National Observer at Albany. Others were mostly subordinate to and mere echoes of these master journalists. As a specimen of the spirit of these leaders, the following extract from Southwick will give an idea with what literary food they furnished the people, quote. Anti-Masonry sprung from the throne of God, and under his almighty wings it will conquer hell's master's peace and redeem our country from vile slavery and galling chains, from eternal disgrace, from everlasting ruin and degradation. The man who hesitates to support such a cause stabs his country and dishonors his creator. Let no such man be trusted. Let him live neglected and die unpitied and despised, 
and let no monument tell his name or point to the spot where his recreant ashes pollute the soil that gave him birth, unquote. These worthies, Weed and Southwick, like loving brothers, continued giving tone to the anti-Masonic press and shaping all of the party, all the policy of the party, until Weed removed to Albany in 1830 and took charge of the journal, when he, he and Southwick soon quarreled, and Weed drove his former coadjutor from the tripod. The law invoked. Warrants were issued and trials instituted without number, and each su succeeding day brought a light brought to light a new brood of stories of violence, blood, and murder. Quote, while one of these trials was going on at Batavia against someone who was supposed to have been connected with the affair, with a hundred or more witnesses subpoenaed, a rumor was set afloat that Morgan's body had been found and would be present at the place of trial, while every other tale that could possibly inflame the passions of the multitude was invoked and set afloat. Like a seething cauldron, of the upheaving of public opinion was aroused against the perpetrators of the outrage and their associates. By this time, the excitement had arrived at the pitch of causing anti-Masonic associations, with the, and the political leaders were happy. Town meetings were called in the several counties, and a most formidable organization was elected. The anti-Masonic committee went to work to rake the Niagara River in a portion of the waters of Lake Ontario, it became absolutely necessary for them to find Morgan's body or no conviction for murder could be had, nor the excitement prolonged. This business was conducted with great zeal for some months, but no Morgan was found. Yet a body was found near the mouth of the Oak Orchard Creek on the shore of Lake Ontario, which appeared to have been left there by the waves. Being in a high state of decomposition, it was buried. It soon spread throughout the surrounding country that it was Morgan's body. The anti-Masonic committee, headed by Weed and Whittlesley of Rochester, repaired to the place of burial. The body was disinterred. Miss Morgan was conveyed from Batavia to Oak Orchard, and other witnesses subpoenaed from even a greater distance. The body having been dead, as it was afterward proved, more than six months, it was in a poor condition to be identified, except perhaps by its clothing, teeth, hair, and height. In neither of these did it correspond to or resemble Morgan, Miss Morgan at once declared that the clothes were not the ones her husband wore when he left Batavia. But the anti-Masonic committee were determined to have it pronounced Morgan's. A jury of inquest was impaneled and witnesses examined when 13 persons were sworn who all deposed that they knew it to be the body of that individual. Mrs. Morgan was induced to confirm the other witnesses, but was much less decided in her opinion. The jury brought in a verdict that it was the mortal remains of William Morgan and that he came to his death by drowning. All doubts now were declared removed from the public mind. The multitude flocked to the funeral procession. The body was removed to Batavia under the auspices of the anti-Masonic committee and a pompous funeral held, after which it was again interred. Quote, the cry of vengeance against the Masons was now on the breeze and the ghost of Morgan was said to walk, unquote. But the story spread and the newspapers carried the intelligence even to the other side of the border until it reached the ears of a real of the real widow of the drowned man. A man by the name of Timothy Monroe living at Newark, Canada, and attempting to cross the Niagara River on the ice the, pre the spring previous had been drowned. A description of the clothes found on the supposed body of Morgan induced Miss Monroe to believe it was the body of her drowned husband. She therefore, in company with some friends, repaired to Batavia and demanded a reinvestigation. The ill-fated body, which was not allowed to remain quiet in the waters where the soul had left it, was not permitted to lie in peace in the earth and was again disinterred. 
At this second inquest, it was most irrefragably proved that it was the identical body of Timothy Monroe and not that of Morgan. Miss Monroe specified before seeing them certain articles of dress which she made with her own hands and which were found exactly as she stated. In a great number of the particulars specified on oath before the first jury proved to be totally false and the second examination dispelled all doubt from the minds of everyone except such as were determined not to be convinced. A good enough Morgan till after election. Even to this day, we often see quoted in political newspapers the above sentence, the origin of which is ascribed to Thurlow Weed. At the disinterment of Monroe's remains at the time of the inquest at Oak Orchard, after he and Whittlesley had viewed the body, they at once discovered that it was not that of Morgan. Both of them were well acquainted with him and knew very well that he was bald on the top of the head and never wore whiskers. This body had quite a tuft of hair where Morgan was bald. And also on one side of his face, a bushy whisker. The other one from the putrid straight state of the flesh was gone, evidently having been washed away by the water. Whedon Whittlesley saw that if the body was seen by those who had known Morgan or by his wife, that it would be at once pronounced not that of Morgan's, and they could not prove that a murder had been committed. It was reported that Weed privately mutilated the body by pulling out the hair and leaving the scalp and cheek bare as Morgan's was before his disappearance. When he remarked to Whittlesley, it is a good enough Morgan till after election. In justice to Mr. Weed, who was still living at a good old age, it should be stated that it is very doubtful if he was guilty of such a de desecration of the dead. It was charged against him, however, by his political opponents, and especially reiterated by the Albany Argus. After he removed to Albany in 1830, he silently permitted it to remain uncontradicted until some year, 10 years afterwards, when Henry O'Reilly, then editor of the Rochester Daily Advertiser, repeated it in the heat of a political excitement, and Weed immediately commenced a libel suit against the publishers of that paper, laying his damages, if I remember rightly, at $20,000. The case was never brought to trial, and the defendants made some kind of a disclaimer which satisfied the wounded feelings of Weed. Insanity and Fanaticism the affair of Morgan and the mystery surrounding his fate was pregnant with wonder from the beginning. During the highest pitch of excitement, there were not wanting people who, carried away by insanity, equal to the days of Salem witchcraft, came forward and made confession as murderers. In one case, a certain man by the name of Hill, living in Erie County, published a card over his own signature in the papers, confessing with the most imposing solemnity that he himself was the murderer of Morgan, for which he supplicated the mercy of God and man. He attracted some notoriety, which was perhaps his motive, and was imprisoned, but could not gain a martyr's fame by being hung. The grand jury dismissed him as being a crazy fanatic, or moonstruck, in the upper story. A man by the name of Sheldon, of very dissolute and intemperate habits, and confined for debt at the time, Morgan was taken from jail in Canadaigua, in a public barroom while in a maudlin condition of intoxication, boasted of his being one of the abductors and murderers of Morgan. He repeated the same story when partially sober and was very properly arrested and sent to jail, but absolutely refused to divulge who, his, who were his accomplices in the crimes he confessed. He was indicted and tried upon his own confession, but his friends clearly proved an alibi for him. It appeared that on the night of Morgan's abduction, he was in a debauched condition, in bed and in a drunken stupor, and was not off the de debtor's limits in Canadagua for months afterwards. 
Notwithstanding, however, the anti-Masonic jury, which had been organized to convict, brought in a verdict of guilty. Judge Throop, who was then circuit judge and before whom he was tried in passing sentence upon him, said that although there had not been a particle of evidence on the trial to prove him guilty of the crime charged in the indictment, nor did he himself believe him guilty, yet as he had boasted that he knew about the crime and the only apology he had offered to the court and jury was the ungracious one of being a, quote, liar and drunkard, unquote. Therefore, the court sentenced him to three months confinement in the county jail, not for abduction, but for lying and drunkenness. Notwithstanding all the pretended expositions of the secrets of Freemasonry published by Miller and the supplemental publications of Giddings and Bernard, the minds of the vulgar were not satisfied. They believed the institution much worse than represented. The fantasies of insanity knew no bounds, and the horrible stories of blood and murder no end. Many became the more, mere puppets of delusion and believed every horrible tale that was told. Amidst this state of insane ravings, there appeared in the streets of Canandaigua a crazy mountebank that for audacity and idiocy scarcely ever had a parallel in human lunacy. He had been an itinerant preacher of some sort of religious views, but I believe never a licensed minister of any sect. To give some idea of his fertile imagination and crazy deliriums, we subjoin in substance one of his harangues as near as, as it can now be remembered. He commenced by saying he had years gone by, joined the Freemasons, and he proposed to give his gaping audience a substantial account of all the doings of that institution, and then branched off by reciting sundry mysterious circumstances which befell him as a member of the fraternity that had not been developed by Morgan or other pretended impostors of the institution. He said that as soon as one was initiated, he was, quote, inspired by the devil, unquote, which in the, his case was as follows, quote, as soon as he was let into the dark secrets of the lodge, an elder mason began to practice pranks of a very disagreeable quality upon his person, whereupon being moved by an imp of hell, which the presiding master had engaged for his protection, he strayed away with one of the swords which are always ready for use in the lodge, severed his right leg from his body, and standing upon his left, gave the old mason who had exercised him such a castigation that with it, he was constrained to flee from his sight in a fright. He then returned to leg the leg to its place, and no lameness was the consequence. This devil stood by him a long time, but he having revealed to a friend some of the mysteries of masonry, the imp gave him over to the lodge to be dealt with according to Masonic law. He was abducted and strangled to death, but the devil again proved his friend and restored him to animation and took him to Europe, where his adventures were of a similar character as those of Baron Munchausen. Suffice it to say that he at last had his eyes open like St. Paul, and he determined to get rid of the devil and Freemasonry, which by constant prayers and performing numerous penances he was enabled to do. He was then performing his mission of destroying the power of the devil on earth, and when that was done, the hydra-headed monster of Masonry would fall with it. His ravings proved to be quite a performance to a fun-loving crowd, and the roars of laughter which frequently interrupted him seemed to be taken by him for applause. It was difficult to make up one's mind whether the fellow was really so far demented that his tale was the wild ravings of a lunatic's imagination, or that of a sane humorist who was trying to offset some of the ridiculous stories set afloat about masonry, some of which were of a similar character. It was generally believed, however, that he was demented. Several years later, he went about the country preaching 
on some other hobby he had adopted, and the author heard him deliver one of his discourses in a country schoolhouse some 10 years later, which was a mixture of sense and nonsense, but mainly orthodox. He showed then no signs of insanity, except it be that at the close he made another appointment to preach in the same house five years and a half from that very day, and it is said that he did appear at the appointed time and deliver a very sensible sermon. Many ludicrous and humorous scenes took place in various parts of the country where the fanaticism of anti-masonry prevailed. Some of the fraternity who were fond of joking frequently played sharp practice, and many anecdotes are related, witty sayings and retorts made that could not fail to raise the risibilities of the most staid and upset the gravity of the most solemn. A very fine old gentleman in the city of Rochester, a member of the Society of Friends, was very explicit in charging the entire body of Freemasons with Morgan's murder and avowed his belief that every member was guilty. He was one day descanting on his favorite subject in presence of one of the fraternity when the following dialogue occurred. Quote, Mason, but my dear sir, you are ungenerous in censuring our whole order for the fruits of the few. Quaker, thou art wrong. Thy whole fraternity deserve to be censored for not turning the sinful out from among ye. Why don't thee get rid of the wicked if ye are all wicked? Mason, why, my friend, if your story is to be believed, we did most effectually rid ourselves of one of them, but you antis kicked up such a devil of a row about it that we thought it best to let the others remain as they were, unquote. A laughable story of Morgan's abduction and murder was told and perhaps believed in some rural districts where many horrors were told and distorted accounts had gained ev- credence. It was this, quote, Morgan sat in his back room at Batavia late at night writing about out his discourses. Being weary, he had lain aside his pen and was regaling himself with a pot of spruce beer and a Dutch pipe when he discovered a pair of boots descending the chimney. Presently, a pair of legs made their appearance. Morgan was frightened. Santa Claus did not enter houses only in December, and this was September. In a few minutes, one Jubilo Smith, well known to Morgan as a mason, stood before him covered with soot as the chimney had not been cleaned for years. At first, Morgan took him for a mere, more important personage and thought this time had come, thought thought his time had come. But Smith brushed himself a little, and Morgan discovered it was only an agent of his sulfurous majesty. Smith immediately hoodwinked Morgan and fastened a cable toe about his waist. Two other agents of the devil, named Jubala Johnson and Jubalum Thompson, were on the roof, who instantly pulled him up the chimney, feet foremost. Smith followed. How he got up, no matter, but it was all done in a few moments. A balloon with a small steam engine fed by brimstone was ready into which Morgan was forced. The three conspirators followed, and away they sailed for Niagara. They stopped at a public house on the way, kept by a mason, where they all took a gin cocktail and ate some red herrings. Morgan begged for his life, but they would not listen to his prayer, but forced more gin down his throat until he became stupidly intoxicated in which condition he was dispatched. Reflections. It takes a philosophical mind to reconcile the mad frenzy that seized upon a majority of the people in Western New York in their war upon Freemasonry. It appears strange how so inveterate a persecution in the 19th century could have prevailed against individuals and a society that had existed at least since the earliest date of English history and which had on its register such glorious and illustrious names as George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and nearly every other renowned and revered patriot of our patriotic revolution, and who had not at 
that time lain in their graves long enough to have been forgotten, or their exemplary and useful lives so remote as not to be the theme of praise on every tongue. It was the same sort of spirit which heated the tongs of St. Dominic, invented thumbscrews, and burned and hung witches, the same that caused pagans to persecute Catholic Christians, Catholics to persecute Protestants, Protestant Episcopalians to persecute Protestant Puritans, and Protestant Puritans to persecute Protestant Quakers and other non-Puritan Protestant sects. Strange indeed that it, the age of enlightenment, that any order of things could have aroused such a prescriptive crusade against a society which had for so many centuries been honored because a few members may have, under a mistaken zeal or misguided notions of Masonic obligations, carried off a certain man, leaving the inference that he had been murdered. It would have been less strange had the people believed in ghosts, goblins, and haunted houses, in signs, omens, and death watches, and particularly that the devil was a wonderfully active personage, entering into old women, negresses, and deformed ugliness, and there playing all sorts of wicked pranks upon humanity. But the people generally believed in no such bugbears, yet a certain class showed all the inveterate malice of demons and would have sung pans of joy at the execution of a mason, as the old Puritans of Salem had done when a harmless, innocent girl was hung between heaven and earth because she had been accused of the ridiculous folly of witchcraft. Anti-Masonry in the Churches Soon after, Weed and his associates had formed a political anti-Masonic party, and it had become a power in the land. The question of secret societies became agitated in many of the churches and in, in the locality where the political party had been organized. The question was, in such an institution as Freemasonry consistent with Christianity? And could a consistent and true supporter of Christ at the time be a Freemason? These questions first arose in the Presbyterian, Congregational, and Baptist churches. The Methodists were more conservative, and many of their societies for some time resisted all attempts to allow the subject to distract their councils. But it was only a question of time. As the excitement increased, it was impossible for any of the evangelical churches to avoid its introduction. A large proportion of the Methodist clergymen were members of the fraternity, many of them distinguished for their zeal in giving a moral tone to the conduct of the lodges, as well as their unselfish devotion to the propagation of the religion to which they had consecrated their lives and energies. The same may be said of many Baptist clergymen, but they were not so numerous as those of the Methodists. In the Episcopal Church, always conservative, but little agitation was allowed to disturb its harmony. Among the Presbyterian and Congregational clergy, it was rare that a Mason could be found, and the excitement had scarcely commenced against Masonry before they began to denounce the institution in the most bitter and extravagant terms from the pulpit and joined with the political anti-Masons in a determination to exterminate the order. Among the members of those churches, were there were some who belonged to the lodges, and in many instances, the mainstay and support of their respective, respective societies. But as the anti-Masonic influence increased, numbers of those yielded to the clamor and renounced Masonry for the sake of peace, and the apple of discord seemed never to cease. Nearly all the members in the Baptist churches yielded to the first demand and became the most violent, and those who remained were cited before an ecclesiastical court and were expelled as unworthy members of Christ's church and denied the right of communion. Other churches followed, and the religious denominations I have mentioned were soon purged of all taint of Freemasonry in western New York.
It is a little amusing to read the records of some of the church trials which took place. When a brother was known to belong to the institution, he was immediately cited before the presbytery or other judicial power of the society to show cause why he should not be dealt with. On his appearing and demanding of what he was accused, he was asked if he was a Freemason. If he replied in the affirmative, charges were preferred against him and he put upon his trial. The witnesses against him were unusually were usually seceding Masons who were asked if their opinions of the evil influence of the order, and among this class, willing witnesses were generally found to testify all that the prosecutors desired. Sometimes an honest, conscientious man would not testify as it was expected. As a specimen of these church trials, I subjoined the testimony of two seceding Masons brought before a Baptist church in Danville against some contumacious member who refused to dissolve his connection with the order. The first are the questions propounded in the answers of Reverend Henry Jones, who was pastor of a Baptist society and had renounced masonry on the demand of his congregation that peace might remain in his church. Quote, did you, while a member of the lodge, consider oaths you had taken consistent with your duties as a Christian minister? Answer, I certainly did. Did you not consider yourself bound to execute the penalty of death upon a member who should disclose the secrets of masonry? Answer, I'm not willing to own that. I was ever a, at heart a murderer. On the question of being repeated in the def definite answer requested, the answer was I did not. Question, did you suppose from anything you saw or heard that your brethren with whom you associated felt that they ought to take the life of anyone that should disclose? Answer, no, never. Question, did you or your brethren consider yourselves bound to vote for a brother to any office in preference to another of equal qualifications? Answer, I did not. Question, did you consider yourself bound or did the members of the lodge consider themselves bound to screen from justice a brother who had committed a crime which exposed him to punishment by the civil law? Answer, I never did. Question, did you ever hear any religious tenets or political principles discussed in the lodge? Answer, no. On the contrary, it was strictly enjoined that no such discussion could be allowed. At the same church trial, another seceding Mason by the name of Chisholm, who was a candidate on the anti-Masonic ticket for office, was interrogated in the like manner and gave answers directly opposite to the Reverend Brother as follows. Quote, question. Did you consider yourself while a member of the lodge bound by your oath to execute death upon a member who should disclose the secrets of masonry? Answer, I did. Question, did you consider all the members bound by the same oath to take the life of him who should disclose? Answer, yes, I did. Question, did you consider yourself bound to vote for a brother to any office in preference of another of equal qualification? Answer, I certainly did. Question, did you consider yourself bound to screen from justice a brother who had committed a crime which exposed him to punishment by the civil law? Answer, I did. Question, did you ever hear any religious tenets or political principles discussed in the lodge? Answer, very often. Such was the conflicting testimony by which it was attempted by synods and ecclesiastic courts to draw out the proceedings of the lodges, and generally with about the same result as given by the above two witnesses. Those who could say the most about the institution were believed by those who wish to favor the political party, then becoming so potent. In some cases, this prescriptive course was the means of entirely breaking up large and influential churches. 
I might mention one where it ended in the disruption of a very flourishing Baptist society, which worshipped in a handsome church edifice and was one of the most prosperous religious communities in Ontario County. In this congregation, there were many wealthy and respectable members who were not only devoted to the Baptist mode of worship, but were also prominent and zealous Freemasons. No sooner, sooner had the fanaticism against Masonry appeared than the pastor, who was an eloquent pe preacher, but an intolerant bigot, began to thunder his anathemas against the order and proclaimed that every person who did not immediately renounce his connection with such a, quote, hell-begotten, unquote, society was destined to everlasting damnation, and no one after repentance could atone for his wickedness. About one half of the members sustained in the, the pastor in his war upon the institution, and a lively time and many disgraceful scenes took place at several church meetings. The Antis, however, aided by political considerations and outside influence, gained the day, and the Masons were all expelled. Those who were left in the church were either unable or unwilling to bear the whole expense of keeping up the pastor's salary and insisted on a reduction of his pay, which he declined to submit to, and another disgraceful quarrel was gotten up, which ended by another division that completely broke up the society. The church edifice was sold to the Universalists and is still owned and occupied by that denomination. But it need not be inferred that the Universalists were exempt from the infection which distracted the other denominations. Nearly all the Universalist preachers were Masons, some of them zealous ones, and but few, if any, of them ever renounced their allegiance to the order. But there were many of their parishioners who could not withstand the contagion, and it became as, an injuri as injurious in that as in other societies. The determined opposition of such, such often broke up the relation between clergymen and people. One notable case was that of the venerable Father Stacy, an eloquent and unblemished universalist preacher who had long been the pastor of a large society at Hamilton, Madison County. A few of his most influential members became the most bitter partisans against Masonry and refused to commune with their pastor because he was a Mason. These members at a church meeting demanded that he should renounce the order or give up his position as pastor, as they said that they, quote, could not and would not hear the gospel preached by a man who belonged to a society which they believed had its origin in heathenish darkness, unquote, and which had been supported by blood and murder from its commencement up to the present time. Father Stacy replied at some length in an eloquent defense of the institution in which he said, quote, do not ask me to renounce masonry for I will not do it. And now I say, once for all, you have no business with it. It is a matter exclusively between my own conscience and my God, and I feel no accountability to you on the subject. I will enter into no compact with you about it, nor agree to sit in lodge in a lodge. I will do so if I please, and as often as I please, without asking your liberty. I will have my liberty in this respect. And while I accord to you equal liber liberty, I beg of you never again to let this subject be brought into the church. But the fanatics were not appeased, and Mr. Stacy voluntarily severed his connection with the society and removed to the West. A few years later, when the excitement had lost its power, his persecutors begged him to return, acknowledging their error and their folly. Similar occurrences took place in a good many places where flourishing churches were destroyed, which took many long years for them to recover their lost ground. <laughs>